Debs, and welcome to the podcast, where we get to hear stories and insights from leaders in the Catholic creative world every week. This week, we're talking with Frank Hanna, an investor of 35 years and author of the books A Graduate's Guide to Life and What Your Money Means. In this podcast, Marcellino and Frank have an enlightening discussion about God's gifts of money and wealth. They talk about Frank's experiences growing up in a business-oriented family, the church's scarcity mindset when it comes to talking about money, and how we need to change that mindset to be one of gratitude and trust. Let's check it out. Frank, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Marcellino, it's great to be with you, and I'm, I'm really happy to be, uh, to be chatting with you today. Yeah, this is, this is awesome. So I, I just wanted to start off with just asking you what it took to get your own Wikipedia article. For that's quite the task. Uh, you, you know, I wish I could tell you, I didn't set up my own Wikipedia article. Somebody else started that. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm going through the internet one day and, and I find out that I've got a Wikipedia page. I do not know how it started or how to even administer it. But for some reason, it's there. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. I attempted to start my own Wikipedia page and realized that it actually is like pretty difficult to do. So yeah, so, you know, you you made it. You made it, Frank. <laughs> well, at least in this in this digital age, I made it for now. We don't we don't know what may be around even five minutes from now, or five years from now, or fifty years from now. But I've had the good fortune to give a number of talks around the country and speak to different groups about some of the things that are both in my most recent book. And I wrote an earlier book on money that got a nice amount of press and attention. And so I think when you're out there in the public square, you end up, somebody starts a Wikipedia page about you. So, yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, where you're at. Give us some setting. Well, that's that's interesting. Where I'm at, life has got, if you, if you think of life a little bit like a football game with quarters, you know, the four quarters, and I'm a big football fan. So I'm in the third quarter. And that's an interesting place to be. I remember when I turned 50, thinking, I'm no longer a young man. I'm not an old man, but I'm no longer a young man. Plato said that true wisdom starts when a man reaches 50. I think you can actually gain wisdom way before you're 50. And hopefully, most of your listeners are below the age of 50 and seeking to gain wisdom. And I think you can. But there is something that comes with turning 50, where you start thinking about how you're going to finish the second half of life. If nothing else, I, I think I'm a lot more deliberate now. I'm not on death's door at all. I'm still a relatively young person, but life doesn't go on forever. There is a sense of wanting to make sure that you make each day count, each moment count without, I, I don't really like the YOLO uh, uh, <laughs> philosophy to life. And a lot of us feel that way now. You know, when, when the media thrust in front of us all these different sensations and experiences we're supposed to have, then we get the YOLO, which, is, as your listeners know, is you only live once. I don't think it's that approach. I don't like that because that, that, that sort of implies that, boy, if you don't go grab it today, you're never going to really live life fully. I don't like that. But there is something about being deliberate in the way you live. So, so that's where I am. Good. Learning to be deliberate. Just, I, I know most of my listeners are, are probably familiar in some way with you, but let's say you're at a dinner party. Somebody doesn't know you. What do you tell them when they ask you what you do? <laughs> you know, it's interesting in, in this day and age that that's what people ask you. I'm on a lot of planes. You, know, you sit sitting beside someone on a plane and say, what do you do? You know, John Paul II emphasized that we need to move from a culture of doing to a culture of being. Amen. Um, 
And so now having said that, if somebody on a plane says, what do you do to say, well, it's not so important what I do, it's what I am or how I, my being, then it kind of throws them for a loop. So we have to meet people where they are. What do I do? I sometimes will get into conversations with strangers and sometimes I'll say, say to them, well, actually, the most important thing I do is to try to keep my relationship with God. The next most important thing I do is to cultivate my relationship with my wife. And the next most important thing is with my other family members, my parents and my children and now now grandsons. And then after that, you know, I think life, it's not so much a pyramid. If you think about a bullseye, there are concentric circles. There's something in the very middle that you really want to hit every day, and that's your relationship with God. And then you you move out in those circles. That's what I want to do each day. Now, in the midst of that, I'm an investor. I invest in, I spend about half my time investing in for-profit businesses, and I spend about half of my time investing in nonprofit ventures, oftentimes many, many things associated with the church. But the skill set that I think God gave me was the ability to be an investor who looks at opportunities. I look for opportunities. I look for good plans that might take advantage of those opportunities. And finally, I look for good, people are going to think I'm football obsessed, but I look for good quarterbacks. I look for somebody who can take that business opportunity and that that plan and execute on it and move the team down the field. That's great. I love that. Looking for the quarterback. Actually, what's one of the ways that you, this is more of my, out of my own curiosity. I don't want to like take it down too much of a rabbit hole, but what are some of the ways that you find who the quarterback is? Like what, what are you looking for whenever you're, you're looking for that, that person? One of the great underrated virtues in success in life is the amount of focus that somebody brings to something. I don't care how talented you are. Great things aren't accomplished without a lot of focus. And that's true for businesses. It's true for things that help save the world. It's true for things in politics. It's true for things in the church. The people who are really focused, I don't mean that it's the only thing in their lives, but if if they don't show a sense of commitment, a sense of vocation to something, a sense that this is part of what they're here on this earth to do, they're not likely to get something accomplished that's really great. And so I'm looking for people with that kind of passion that they feel they've been called towards something. So you first need that. Then secondly, there's a there's an assessment of, look, do you do you have the skill set for this? As has already been indicated, I've got a passion for football, but I'm 5'10 and not 6'4. So no, wherever, no matter how much I might actually want to be an NFL quarterback, I'm not likely to do it. Passion is required, but then there's a candid assessment of a skill set. You know, I may not have the skill set to to go do surgery on someone, but maybe I have the skill set to help start a clinic that would perform surgery. So, so there's also an assessment of does this person have the passion, but then also do they have the skill set that it takes? And actually, after one of the benefits of of investing now, I, I guess I've been investing for about 35 years in different kinds of businesses, many, many businesses over the years. You get pretty good at assessing quarterbacks. You watch enough quarterbacks after a while, you get a pretty good feel for whether whether somebody is, is going to have what it takes. Now, you still need to have good fortune and providence and some things break your way. But if you, if you don't start with that, then the, the effort's going to have a really difficult time. Do you have any questions that you ask that, that help you to get get a handle on that up front? I actually like to listen for a while before I dive into questions because 
I find that if you will allow people to speak to their dreams and to what they're envisioning, I think a lot of things start to start to surface. Now, when I do start to question them, though, I am really focused. And this is one of the things in this in this new book, A Graduate's Guide to Life. One of the things that I focus on is, are they willing to embrace reality? And so sometimes people, when people are coming to pitch you with an idea, they think that the more grandiose the idea is, the more excited you'll get about a deal, okay? Whether this is a money-making thing or, or something for the church or something to help society, they think the more grandiose it is. And, and I like the idea of you know, moving the world or making a ton of money. But what I'm really interested in is, are we assessing the reality of the situation? And I say that and people say, oh, yes, I look at things realistically, but most of us don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great philosopher, Joseph Pieper, who said that the beginning of prudence is to see reality, is to see things as they really are. But having said that, uh, I think we've all at some point or another had to read the poet T.S. Eliot, who wrote The Wasteland. But, but in one of his poems, T.S. Eliot said, you know, humankind can only bear so much reality. What happens is we all fool ourselves a little bit. We all tell ourselves because life is tough. Life is a challenge. Life is sometimes frightening. And so we learn how to kind of coach ourselves and give ourselves pep talks. And that's a good thing. But sometimes the pep talk becomes a delusion. Yeah. And, and what I found is if I'm talking to someone about a, a new venture and they're not willing to see things as they really are, unvarnished, then, then we may have problems because the only way you can make good decisions is to see things as they really are. That's the beginning of prudence. I will ask questions to try to determine, wait a minute, is this person, I like the idea of having dreams. I don't want to invest with someone who's living in a dream world. <laughs> and so and there's a distinction there. You want to have dreams and vision, but you, you have to realize we're dealing with, with a finite world. That's why, like I said, when I turned 50, you could live in a dream world and say, I'm going to live forever. Or you could say, you know what? I'm in the second half. So let's be realistic. And I think you're more likely to have success when you really, when you tie yourself to this commitment to seeing things as they really are. Right. That's that was a beautiful answer. I love that. I, yeah, it's amazing to me to hear you speak about football and make analogies like that and then go to Joseph Pieper and then T.S. Eliot. I mean, it seems like you have a pretty wide range of, of interests and study. Yeah, it's just a really interesting thing. Well, God blessed me with curiosity. And you know, one of the things I would want to encourage your readers toward is curiosity. And I would encourage, you know, it's funny with virtues, we only get virtues when we work at them. You know, the very root of the word virtue, vir, means man, means humanness, okay? A virtue is actually what separates us from the animals. It's what separates a human from an animal. And I think there's some virtues we don't necessarily think about, but I think, the, I think having a sense of wonder is a sort of virtue. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, that I think we each ought to cultivate in ourselves. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to each day, uh, you know, find something that you can see the wonder in, because there's something like that every day. And when we cultivate these virtues, whatever they may be, but, but this sense of wonder each day, that nurtures our curiosity. And then when we're curious about what God's created, boy, it, you know, every day is just, is, is, has got a little bit of treasure in it, but it also opens our eyes mm, to yeah. the opportunities that are out there. So for those of your listeners who want to be successful in business, then you want to open your eyes and your ears with a sense of wonder 
And once you start down that path, you, you'll be amazed at the kinds of opportunities that you start to see because you've unfurled your antenna. That's another thing you asked about what I'm looking for in quarterbacks. I'm looking for people with good antenna, you know, and antenna, I mean, this is, I'm mixing a bunch of metaphors here, <laughs> but, but, you know, if you think of antenna like muscles, right, first of all, we don't really have antenna, but we kind of do. We have our eyes and our ears and our, you know, our senses, our senses. But if we exercise our antenna like their muscles, boy, they get more and more sensitive. <laughs> and, and when you got really good antenna, you pick up on a lot more when you're out there in the world. And especially if you want to go into business, you're, you're picking up on nuances now. Mm. You know, you're really listening. You're really seeing. You're really smelling. You're really feeling. You're really tasting. And when you really do those things, boy, a, a, a different dimension almost opens up. Yeah, it's it is definitely a, a experience to start to do that. When I was uh, in ministry as an employee, I, I definitely had a lot of sensitivity to certain things. But when my brother and I started our business about two and a half years ago and took the plunge into just being totally reliant on ourselves, it felt like the world went into technicolor. And it was sort of like I had to, I had to just like really, really look and see and hear and listen in a different way. Or else, you know, like I wasn't going to make make money. <laughs> it's like kind of a, a part of the taking the risk in a way. A absolutely, and it's it's invigorating. Now, every now and then, it can create a little bit of anxiety, also. And so, a little bit, yeah, yeah. And that's an understatement, isn't it? Yeah, it can create a lot of anxiety. And so, we live on this. If you're going to be starting and creating new things, you can read what a lot of true artists say about this. You know, most great artists suffer for their art. That kind of thing does not come easy and it's not all peaceful and tranquil. And I think any act of creation, you know, Michelangelo certainly is, is an unbelievable artist, but, but any act of creation involves some bit of art, is some tiny reflection of God's creation and, and yeah, it, it can cause anxiety, but it is invigorating, uh, <laughs> you know. Both, for sure. So yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear about how, uh, how your family life brought you to the, the ability to see in that, that kind of technicolor. I know that you, your dad took you on, on Saturdays, would go out and, and look at real estate together and talk about business. I'd love to hear some stories about that time and, and how that formed you. Well, you know, one of the things that I think we've, lost in the modern age that for both boys and girls, but maybe even more for boys is this unofficial apprenticeship that little boys used to get. So now, you know, dad goes away to work for most of us. Dad goes away to work most of the day. Two or 300 years ago, back to 10,000 years ago, once a little boy was about five years old, he spent a lot of time with dad and uncles and neighbors, you know, out in fields and being an apprentice to his own father. Right. And, and we, we don't, I mean, the modern world is what it is, but, but little boys miss out on a lot of that now. You know, and so my father, while he did have a day job that he went to, I'll tell you this, after, after he, when he was done with work, before time that he might spend going, on, going out playing cards with, with other men or this or that, and he spent time with us. And weekends, he, he would take my brother and I and we'd get in the car with him and it didn't really matter what we were doing. You know, other, other guys might've gone hunting and fishing with their fathers. We, we looked at real estate, you know, cause my father 
I come from kind of an entrepreneurial family. And my father had his day job, but he wanted a little more financial independence. So on the weekends, he would look at real estate and start investing in it. You know, he would teach us about depreciation and he'd teach us about taxes and he'd teach us about vacancy rates. You know, really, when you're teaching young children, you can teach them how to count apples or, or you can teach them how to count rent money. And you know, <laughs> he taught us how to count rent money. In my family, I, I think there is something you absorb about my father was creative. And he was willing to look at things through a different lens than that which was conventional. Hmm. And I think for people who are interested in starting new things and being engaged, or, and even if you're not the person who starts something, if you like working with that kind of adventure, you have to be willing to look at things a little unconventionally. One of the things both my parents did unconventionally was we went to Mass every Sunday. Even when we were on vacation, we went to Mass. Now, that, that may not sound like all that dramatic a thing, but in the culture today, that's unconventional. Hmm. I think when you see your parents willing to entertain unconventional notions about how to live, that opens your mind. It doesn't mean you reject all of society's norms and that kind of thing. Not at all. You don't, you don't go live in a commune. But, but I, I do think you're willing to look at things in a different way. And that's part of the key to creativity, I think. Yeah. So did I hear that you were a Maronite right Catholic or, or that you'd grown up in that? Well, that's interesting you asked that. I actually was baptized Maronite. I'm now Roman Catholic because there weren't, there weren't really any Maronite churches around us. And, uh, but, but my father, because he's, his family's from Lebanon. And so, uh, so I was baptized Maronite, but it actually got changed in Rome. He, he felt like we were going to the Roman Catholic Church and we should be Roman Catholic. And as you know, they're in communion. There still is a Maronite church here in Atlanta that I like to go to, St. Joseph's here. So it's nice to see the different ritual. Do you have a connection with the Maronite? Or, or, or? Yeah, I do, actually. My, uh, my dad t- started taking us. So my dad is a, a professor of, or was a professor of patristics at University of Dallas. And the parish that was near nearest our house was a little bit hokey, a little bit weird. But there was another parish nearby that was a, a Maronite Rite parish. And he he just loved the history, loved the culture. I mean, we're very Italian, very family-oriented. So whenever we, we would go there, I think we actually felt a lot more at home in a way than, than we did in the Roman Rite often. So I actually was confirmed and received... First Communion at, at that Maronite Church, Our Lady of Lebanon. So, <laughs> ah, okay. Well, yeah, there is something I think you know, without getting into a big liturgical conversation, but there is something about liturgy being different than, than the language and things we ordinarily do in the rest of life. And I think when you go into the Maronite, you know, when you hear during the uh, we're coming up on Holy Week, when you go and you actually hear some of the prayers spoken in Aramaic. And, and you think, okay, that, that's the language that Jesus himself used. You realize that when you step into a church and when you enter into the celebration of Mass, you're entering into something that's timeless and that is unlike anything else on this planet. Yeah. And so I think some of, the, some of that ritual of the Maronite Church helps accentuate. This is different than anything else you do all day long, all week long, all year long. This is something very special. Yeah. And it, so I was also interested to hear if part of the part of the culture of the Lebanese 
was influential in in your upbringing as well. I, I don't know if that resonates at all, but it seems like that that community was very they were very focused. Whenever we would go like and, and have conversations, there were there was always a hustle. There was always a um, just a yeah like a, a freedom to look look at the world differently that I really enjoyed being around that, those people. So. Well, that's very nice of you to say. And, and uh, you know, I think we have to be cautious as we talk about cultural characteristics mm-hmm. um, because they're, 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 they're general observations. They certainly don't apply to everyone. But, but you do have a culture with the Lebanese. You know, the, the, the predecessors to the Lebanese were the Phoenicians. You know, they lived there on the Mediterranean for thousands of years, surrounded by other more powerful civilizations. And so the Phoenicians, the modern day Lebanese, they weren't a significant power themselves. So they learned to trade. I mean, the Phoenicians were known as great shipbuilders, right? And great traders. And that's what they did. So they had all these powerful uh, empires around them and they, they befriended all of them by trading with them. And so, you know, over generation and generation and generation, you have all these people who live on the Mediterranean and, and know how to trade with others. And, and so after a while, you don't even learn it as a kid, but all of a sudden you wake up and you say, you know, I kind of have certain characteristics because they're infused within all the rituals of your culture. And so, you know, my, my great-grandfather and his brother came over here from Lebanon and my great-grandfather, so they had their own business. And th- this is at a time, by the way, when women didn't tend to have businesses. So I'm, I'm speaking of the men in this case, because that was the historical fact. But, you know, so my great-grandfather and his brother had their own business. My grandfather had six kids, three of whom were sons, and all three of them had their own business. My grandfather then had six kids, three of them were sons, and they all three had their own business. And then my father had three kids, and my brother and I, we have our own business. Now, nobody ever said, hey, you need to have your own business one day. Nobody ever told me that. But every male in the line has that. And what's interesting is in the last two generations, several of the women in that line have their own business. And so, I don't know, you kind of drink the water. You know, some of it is realizing, look, it's not crazy to have your own business. Some of it, when, you, when you're around it, you say, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. And, and by the way, I, I, it, it, I need to be clear. It's not like all of those businesses were huge commercial successes. In fact, most were not. You know, I have a sign hanging in my office that says Frank Shoe Store. It was my grandfather's shoe store. And when I was a kid, uh, I learned how to price inventory. And then when I got a little bit older, you know, and I would, I would write the prices down on the shoe boxes. And when I got a little bit older, my grandmother would kind of shove me to the front door when a customer would come in and say, Frank, go, you know, go greet them. Go ask if you can help them. And I was, I don't know, 10 years old feeling, feeling all nervous, but that's just what we did. You went up and said, hi, how, how can I help you? Could I show you some shoes? And they'd ask for shoes and you'd let them try them on. So, so yeah, it's kind of interesting, the culture you grow up in. It just seemed quite acceptable to be willing to consider going into business. Hmm. It was not at all acceptable to me growing up until my parents, my dad being a, a professor, had there was a political situation at the University of Dallas and, and he had to to move on. And he realized that teaching would never pay enough. And so he started his own business and, and a ministry at the same time. And that was a pretty huge change for us as a family. Like he introduced me to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that just blew my mind. But it was it was so foreign to everything that I had thought or learned before to start thinking about money like that. I mean, 
I think it, it just kind of was growing up. Like I thought about, I, I was very into music, very into, uh, into art. And so I, I kind of thought about art as like this pure expression of the human spirit and that business and entrepreneurship was sort of like this more tainted worldly thing. And how is that a distortion of how God created us? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question, Marcelino. And, and much of, I think is a common distortion. It, and like many distortions, it's born out of, I think, sort of some ignorance of, of what money really is. A few years ago, I, I wrote a book called What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And what I was, one of the points I tried to make in there was that the way we think about money reminds me of the way we think about sex. So, if I were to say to a believer, to a non-believer, sex is this thing that's really great, but can is a little bit, you hide it, it's kind of mysterious. If you say, is sex a gift from God? Most people will say yes. Actually, if you ask them, is wealth a gift from God? A lot of people will say yes. The fact is money and sex are both gifts from God, surrounded by mystery. And one of the reasons they're mysterious is that we both know that we know that both of them can be very, very dangerous hmm. in, in a way that like, if you say, um, is practicing medicine dangerous? Well, like, yeah, I guess so. You could do it carelessly and people could get hurt, but you don't think of that. But, but money is so powerful. It's so powerful that people can misuse it in a way that, that has big ramifications. And in the same way, sex is really powerful. It's arguably the most powerful animal instinct that we have. And so every one of us knows not a few, not dozens, but hundreds of people who have in one way or another been hurt by the misuse of sex. I mean, just, just the number of families who have been fractured. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Lives are changed forever because of the misuse of sex. Having said that, sex is beautiful. Sex is wonderful. Sex is a gift from God. This is one of the gifts that John Paul II gave us as he promoted his theology of the body. Sex is something that you've got to talk about and that you have to understand and say, look, it's, it, let's not be afraid of sex. Let's treat it as a gift. But if we don't talk about it, especially with our children, uh, with the right respect, if we don't talk about it, we won't really understand it. And we'll always view it as this thing that's great but maybe a little bit dirty. And I think with money, you know, the advantage I had with my, with growing up as I did was, you know, my father would talk about money, but there was never any confusion that somehow money's what made you happy. Money, money's just a, it's a gift God gave us to have encounter with other people so that we can trade with them and make our lives better. And it, it's, it's actually a wonderful invention. Uh, but but because it's so mysterious and sometimes people don't know where it comes from, or how, we, we think, you know, it's a little bit dirty, too. And, and people do misuse it. But money itself is not dirty. So I think one reason I, I wrote that book is I think we almost need a theology of wealth. Yeah. You know, uh, because wealth is a good thing. Just like sex is a good thing. We have a theology of the body. Wealth is a good thing, and we kind of need a, a good theological understanding of it. And I think that that's also something that I see a lot in the church is just a, a fear and a sort of like disparagement of of money. Like, for instance, just and and this there are probably really good reasons for this. But I was I was recently having a conversation with a guy who's starting co working space and wants to do that for Catholics. Really innovative thing. A lot of interest that people have in it. I, I feel like it's something that 
I would love to invest in if I had had money to invest. But he was saying that he had to make he had to make it a nonprofit because in order to work with the the structural church, the institutional church, you have to be a nonprofit. And I just thought that was a really interesting interesting thing that there's like this fear about working with people that that have for profit businesses that there's like they're going to take advantage of you. They're just out for their own interest, and it just seems like it's holding us back in a lot of ways. I think it is. If we instead view profit as extra value that's being created for people, in my more recent book, A Graduate's Guide to Life, I, I talk about how to be wealthy. And I tell, I'm surrounded by young people now. In fact, most of the people that I invest in now in the for-profit world are, are young, young people with great ideas. And I tell them, look, the, the way to get wealthy is to create value for other people. Right. You know, when, when you want to get money, there's just a few ways to do it. You can steal it. That's obviously wrong. You can gamble for it or you can have other people give you their money in exchange for something. Now, if you create enough value for other people, they will give you lots of money. And if that creates a profit, that profit is a reflection of the fact that you created a lot of value for a lot of people. Now, there's a legitimate question then about what you ought to do with that profit. Right. Okay. You could go, you could go waste it uh, or, or, or ruin it or have it ruin your own soul or the souls of those you love, or you could reinvest that profit to bring even more value to people. But this idea of creating value for others, I actually think it's the, the most, the, the, the first essential ingredient of, of wealth is to, is to create value for other people. So in defense of the way, the mindset of a lot of people, for thousands of years, there was one basic form of wealth. When society was 95% an agricultural society, the only real form of wealth that could be passed on was land. Right. Okay. And there's only so much land. And so for a long time, cultures had this idea that, well, there's only one source of real wealth, and that's land, and there's a scarcity of land. And so if somebody's wealthy, it's because somehow they got the land from other people. They, they somehow stole it from them or took it from them. Or Nowadays, you know, land is not where most of the wealth is. Most of the wealth is in the creative genius that people bring to the marketplace. And there's not a scarcity of that. So I think we've got to move from yeah, up until the 20th century, most of our thinking about wealth was very materialistic. Hmm. The most valuable companies in the world today, most of their value does not come from physical assets. If you think about Apple and Google and Facebook and all these technology companies, okay, almost all of the wealth of their market value comes from the ingenuity that they're bringing. And there's not a scarcity of ingenuity. But yeah, a lot of our culture is still stuck in that rut of thinking that economics and wealth, that there's a finite amount of it, and that if somehow you're profitable, well, you must be taking more than your share from others. Right. And, and it's going to take a while. I think we're making progress in that regard, but, but we've got many centuries of, of thinking one way that have got to be revised. That's really interesting. I've never heard it said that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, if you, so to you, God like does want us to be successful in life and business. If that's true, then how can we create a Catholic environment that produces a successful and influential next generation of Catholic entrepreneurs? Um, I think I accept your word, uh, successful 
But but I might uh, change that to um, I do believe God wants us to be wealthy. Hmm. And I make that distinction because, I, I, first of all, I love Mother Teresa. And, and she once said, God does not call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And I'm, I'm really I, I love that phrase because, candidly, I've had far more failures in my life than I have had successes. Uh, I have many, many failures. And that's okay because when, when I fail, I learn. I mean, every day, hopefully I'm not committing mortal sins. Every day I commit a few venial sins. I fail every day and I, and I try to get back up. So, so I don't know that it's success as much. I do believe God wants us to be wealthy. Yeah, it's funny, sometimes I give a talk and I, and I ask people, you know, how many of you are as wealthy as Warren Buffett or Mark Zuckerberg? Or, and of course, nobody feels like they're as wealthy as Mark Zuckerberg. I don't actually, I, when I ask that question, I'm not saying how many of you have as much money as Mark Zuckerberg. For those of listeners who don't know, he's the guy that owns Facebook or started Facebook. Right. I didn't ask how many people have as much money. I said, how many are as wealthy? See, because wealth, well, the word wealth comes from an old English word, wheel, W-E-A-L, meaning well-being. Okay. I believe God wants all of us to have a, a wonderful well-being in his creation. I think God wants everybody to be wealthy. I don't know that he wants everybody to have a lot of money. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think he does want everybody to have a lot of money. I don't think he, ever, he wants everybody to be a great basketball player or a great doctor. Different people are called to different things. I do think he wants us to be wealthy. I think it's important for every believer and non-believer, but every believer to say, how could I be wealthy? And, and what that means is, let's explore what does it take to be wealthy? In the, in the book, A Graduate's Guide to Life, I mentioned two key things. And I found this, and I've, I've done a lot of studying about this because I want to be wealthy. I'm actually more concerned about, more, far more concerned about being wealthy than having money. Hmm. And and I found two things are necessary to be wealthy. You got to have hope in the future, and you need to have good relationships with other human beings. Everyone I've ever met who has hope in the future and who has healthy human relationships with people they love, everyone I've ever met who has both those two things, has been wealthy. Now, I I have in my in my business experiences run across many billionaires, billionaires, be with a billionaire with a B. Okay. The ones who did not have good human relationships or hope in the future, it didn't matter how much money they had. Hmm. They weren't wealthy. They didn't have good, healthy well-being. They weren't happy. And so, uh, so I, I think some of us may end up making a lot of money. Hopefully we'll use it well for God's kingdom. Some of us, someone who stays home and takes care of uh, four children or one child or 10 children, okay, they may not make money, but they, they, they've got a great chance of being quite wealthy. Um, so, so I do believe we should prosper and emphasize that. Yeah, I'll tell you, Marcellina, another point about this wealth, we have a notion that to be successful in life, we must, and I'm going to use the phrase in quotes, get ahead. Right. You know, we, we're supposed to go to college so we can get a good degree so that we can get out in the world and get ahead. And I started thinking about that phrase. And, you know, earlier when I said to, to not always think conventionally, I like to challenge conventional phrases like get ahead. And I thought, well, what is, who am I getting ahead of? I mean, what is, is, is the purpose in life to inch out against somebody else? And, and we're also taught in America that competition is this wonderful, great thing that we should all seek. Hmm. And I started thinking about the most important things in my life. And I thought, you know what? 
And so I've been married to a wonderful woman for many years. And I thought, I don't want to compete for her love. Yeah. And why do I want to compete? I, I want like an abundance <laughs> of love from her. And, and I thought, I, 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 I mean, I enjoy going out and playing golf and competing with my buddies, but boy, competition can rip people apart. Hmm. My brother and I are in business together. We don't compete with one another. I, I don't want to compete with my brother. I don't want to beat my brother and I don't want to lose to my brother. I want to have abundance with my brother. I want to love my brother. I want to be a friend with my brother. I'm very lucky he and I are still best friends after all these years. I want to prosper with my brother. I want to have a sense of wonder with my brother. I don't want to compete with my brother. And so one of the things I would encourage your listeners, you know, sort of two things about getting wealthy. One, look for how you can create value for others. And number two, look for areas where you don't compete with others. Yeah. Look for places where you have a niche that you can fill. Uh, And I'm not saying don't ever compete or run from competition or that kind of thing, because sometimes, you know, competition can help to bring out the best in us. But 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 this idea that that the way to to succeed in life is to get ahead of the next guy, uh, that that's that's ruinous to us. It, It can ruin our lives because no matter where you are, you can find some other friend. Uh who is just a little bit ahead of you. And it, it, it destroys our, it destroys our wealth, that kind of competition, that sort of feeling like, unless I'm getting ahead, I'm failing that destroy, that destroys wealth. Yeah. There's, I think something that coming into the Catholic world and, and starting Catholic creatives, it was sort of an unintentional thing that happens. Uh, we, we somewhat stumbled on, on this, this community in a way it just, looking for it ourselves. But um, as we've been been working in it and trying to cultivate the community, what, one of the things that we've seen is that there is a scarcity mindset in the Catholic economy in a way that's really damaging. There's, There has been such a, I mean, like you said, I, I had no idea about, about the letter. I'd never like made that connection before, but coming into the Catholic world, I've seen so many people looking at each other as competition, whether it's one parish competing with another one or one company wanting to to do stewardship and compete with another one that's trying to do stewardship and defining themselves as like, I'm the one with with the better plan. Uh, and, and there's in, in some way like this fear, there's only so much money and I have to be better than the next guy to make make that work. And one one place where I saw this actually was going to the Napa Napa conference this this last summer. And it was it was an awesome event and I loved it, but I just got this sense and even in myself like this this feeling of need to have a better pitch in like my conversations with people. And it just like I, yeah, I just felt like I had to be ministered to by the Lord in that, that like there is abundance. I just had to choose to believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if that's something that you see a lot, but um, I see it all the time. And and you're right. It's one thing to see it out in the business world because you say, well, that's the secular world. When you see it in the church, it's a little more discouraging. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is it's it's entirely natural. It, you may recall uh, two of the greatest of the apostles, okay, competing with the other apostles as for who would be at Jesus's right hand when he went into his kingdom. In fact, not only did James and John try to compete, and if you recall, the other apostles got upset with them because not only did they do that, they went and got their mother yeah. to lobby Jesus, to lobby Jesus for them, okay? That's how intent they were 
to have the preeminent spot, yeah. to, to get ahead, right? You know, and Jesus, you know, rebuked them and they were among his two favorites, right? He rebuked them because that's, that's not the way to follow Christ by getting ahead of the others. You know, we, the Pope is known as the servant of the servants of God. He's the ultimate, he's, he's to be the ultimate servant. And, uh, you know, it's a very, it's not only an unworldly way to go through life, it's, it's, it cuts against our animal nature. Why, think about this. Why do we compete? All you got to do is look in the animal kingdom. Just watch any do- nature documentary, you know, on any Sunday afternoon, okay? And you will see animals competing for food and water and sex, okay? That's what they all, and they will fight each other to the death for food and water and sex because all those things are needed for survival. So we have that animal instinct within us, but we also have a spark of divinity. And so when you watch people compete, there's a reason for the term sportsmanship because in earlier ages, the people who competed in sports understood, wait a minute, we are about to engage in something that the animals do. Okay. And that's compete against one another. But we are going to have very rigid rules of conduct for how we compete. Because if we don't have rules about it, we will become animals. Hmm. Because we're tapping into something that's very primal. So it's not a bad thing, but we're tapping into something that's very primal when we compete. So if we don't have very rigid rules about how we as human beings ought to treat one another, we will become animals. And you can see that sometimes in sports. Okay. And again, back to the analogy to sex, same sort of thing. We have, most cultures have had very rigid rules and structure around uh, sex because we understood we're tapping into something very powerful and very primal. And if we don't conduct ourselves the right way, people are going to get hurt because we'll act like animals. Right. And so I, I think so much of life. Now, having said that, though, in the same way that the Puritans therefore said, well, sex is so powerful it must be evil. You know, we're, we're going to act like it doesn't even exist almost if we're, if we're puritanical. No, you don't go to that extreme. That's a philosophy called Manichaeism, you know, where it's all either totally evil or... To- no, it's not that. The, the, these are things, these are, these are gifts from God. Competition can bring out the best in us, but only if we're actually wishing the best for the other person. Um, and that's hard to do, but that's what, that's what actually true sportsmanship is about, is hoping that in competing, you bring out the best in yourself and the best in someone else, but it, it's tough. And so when it comes to business, I'm, I'm sort of saying, let's not go into a place where there's, it's so heavy with competition and there's scarcity. Let's look for a place of abundance. Hmm. When you look at the wealth that's been created in Silicon Valley, a lot of it came from industries that didn't even exist before. They weren't scarcity. They were creating new forms of abundance for people. And I don't, I don't agree with everything that's being developed in Silicon Valley, but it's amazing in America, the understanding that no, wealth is not limited. Mm. You know, resources, not, we, we can create new, let's face it, silicon comes from sand. I mean, the entire computer revolution comes from something that's as common as sand. Uh, so yeah, we, we, but yes, I do see it in the Catholic world. I, 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 I try to be patient when I see it because I realize James and John engaged in the same thing with Jesus. It's, a, it's our human nature, but nevertheless, it's still something that we have to guard against. We, got to, we just got to be vigilant and prayerful about it. Yeah. I think there's, there's something so, so real about the experience of God the Father that needs to be, at least for me, that I need to, I need to believe in God the Father as the God that gives good things to his children that he has enough, that he has plenty and that he's not, that, that I'm not just like 
out here trying to do what I'm, I'm called to do by myself. And, and I think that there's, there is some of that orphan spirit in, in all of us that we're afraid that like God isn't going to provide. Marcellino, that is massively profound what you just said. I mean, you, you are, you are, you are so right about that. And, and it's, it's actually understandable when we go through the world, we can say, well, God will provide, but we actually see people who starve. And we actually know that sometimes I don't get what I feel like I need. Now, maybe I just want it and don't really need it, but in my mind, I don't get what I need. And so we have these earthly experiences that tell us, okay, yeah, 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 abundance, blessings, but I know a world of scarcity. Okay, I think you've touched on one of the things that that might be most important in our prayer life, and that is that we acknowledge God's abundance, that we choose to believe in it, that we recognize it when we see it and be thankful for it. But but I think it's a constant prayerful endeavor to choose to believe in God's providence and and that He will that He does love us. You mentioned about being the orphan. Let's face it. Why do siblings, why do they fight with one another? They want preeminence. They want to know that they're the one who is really loved, right? We all want to know that. We all want to know that we're loved. And the idea that God has enough love for all of us, um, we we don't completely believe it. Right. Right? We don't completely believe it. Now, that's okay. God will be patient with us. But I think it is important to say, okay, you know, I, I guess it was St. Augustine, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, and he may have been quoting somebody earlier, too. I'm trying to remember. But yeah, I think we have to choose to believe. People think of faith and hope as being gifts, and they are gifts, but they're also theological virtues, meaning they're things we can choose to cultivate. We can choose to have faith. We can choose to have hope. And, and I think it's an act of the will to say, I'm going to have faith. I am going to believe this. I think one of the things that can help cultivate that faith is to, um, it, it's kind of an old axiom among people, the, the notion of counting your blessings. But I think to nurture a sense of gratitude every day, we may not get everything we're hoping for, but but boy, if each day we count our blessings, that does nurture some gratitude. And I don't know about you, I think I think that does help with this. Yeah feeling like you're an orphan thought that you were that you were referencing. Yeah. How do you have a practice of gratitude that's a that's a daily like part of your morning routine or or anything like that? I try to, you know, I have a couple of sort of spiritual practices I have because I do think that yeah, I'm a human being and I tend toward laziness and and forgetfulness and all that kind of thing. And so to the degree that I can make things a habit, yeah, I'm, I'm more likely to, to, to do it, you know? And, and there are three things in particular for me. I mean, when I get up in the morning, I try to have a few minutes when I do, first of all, I, I ask the Holy Spirit to fill me, to fill my heart and fill my mind and my soul. I start my prayer like that. And, and yeah, I try, to, I try to be thankful, start out by being thankful to God. Um, I try to go to daily mass each day. And during that time, uh, there's a time to give thanks and, and also repent uh, for my for my failings. And then at night, I try to do an examination of conscience. I'd like to tell you that, you know, it goes on for 30 minutes and it's really explicit. And it, it really doesn't. I've found for my examination of conscience, if I can just uh, if I can just think about each of the people that I met that day or talked to on the phone, each of my human encounters, I just kind of go through each human encounter I had that day and review it just to make sure did I, you know, was I was I rude? Did I gossip? Did I do this? Did I do that? And that's that's helpful to me. But I, I tend to remember the the gratitude in the morning because I like to start the day off by saying, um, you know, I had a health scare recently. And so one of the things, you know, 
thank you, Lord, that I woke up this morning. And thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for this. It's, it's interesting. You start doing that, it has a real effect on not feeling like an orphan. And I, you, you use that phrase. I think it's a really powerful phrase. Yeah, it's, a, it's one that I feel like as I've started to mine, I mean, when I stepped into business, I realized that my heart, like everything that was going on in my heart had a very, very real impact on the way that I was living and on like whether I was going to be effective. I started to realize like I had to cultivate hope in myself or I was going to be overwhelmed by the anxiety and I was going to be over. It was like, I realized you know, also that there were many wounds in my life that I had, I had had around money that were directly affecting the way that I was, I was interacting with people. Fear was just kind of overwhelming to me. I was struggling so much with anxiety on a daily basis. And just, I realized that like, I felt like an orphan that I felt like I was alone. And it, it just, um, in order for me to change that, like I've had to do so much internal, internal work. Um, but gratefulness has been huge. It's been so huge. I just feel like I'd love to hear about a moment that you felt like you had to choose hope where you know maybe you took a big risk or, or took something that maybe didn't work out or just felt that fear and, and had to choose, choose to believe that God was going to be enough for you in that. It's a good question. I'll tell you the most despairing thing to me. And despair is actually a sin. Depression is not a sin. To be depressed about something is not a sin. That's a, that's a feeling we have. But despair is when you, when you lose hope. It's the opposite of hope. And that's something we all have to guard against. It's okay to be unhappy because some, some things are just sad in life. But we have to guard against despair. And to me, the most despairing thing, and I hope your listeners never go through this, but they probably will, is when you're betrayed by someone you trusted. Yeah. It's it's so, so damaging. That's why we see in the Bible that Jesus suffered a betrayal from one of his closest friends, because that's that's God's way of letting us know, yes, Jesus, Jesus understood what that was like. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have to hope is when we get betrayed or let down by somebody, and the closer they are to us, the more hurtful it is. And I don't, I don't know if there's anything, I mean, sometimes there are other things that can challenge our faith. You know, when when an innocent child suffers, right? And we wonder, why, why would a just God allow this kind of thing to happen? But that's a different sort of challenge to faith. But when, when another human being who we trust and love lets us down, and guess what? It, it, you know, I said earlier, I hope your listeners avoid it. They won't, because if you love, right. you're taking a chance on another human being who is going to fall short. And so the biggest challenges I've had to my sense of hope is when I've suffered a betrayal. Um, and sometimes that's one thing when somebody just falls short and you're disappointed in them. But every now and then somebody may turn against you. It is shattering. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound melodramatic about it. It's, it's shattering because you think, wait a minute, I trusted this person. Now what? Now what? And so, so I've had a couple of those, those circumstances when you, you just think, really, is that person truly acting in a way that, that almost appears evil. I mean, we hate to call someone else evil, uh, but you see it and you, and you, and you just, you're puzzled by it. So that's the one. And, and I think, again, when, when we have these challenges like that, we, we have to go back and say, you know what? I choose whether to despair or whether to hope. You mentioned hope in the, middle, in the beginning of your question there. Um, I think it's kind of the, the big 
neglected virtue. Among believers, we talk about faith a lot. We obviously talk about love a lot. But I think hope is kind of this mysterious thing, like, well, is it optimism? No, it's not really optimism. I would suggest hope is this sort of confidence in God that we, that we express and we act upon. I think hope is something we ought to pray for every day. And that uh, we, we talked about how gratitude helps, helps further it. I think it's something that we ought to, it, when we're grateful, we can, we can build the hope. But I think we ought to be very conscious about being hopeful in our prayer and then acting hopeful toward others. I mean, it's amazing. Sometimes if you give other people hope, your hope grows. It's sort of like, like love, love and faith are the same way. If you love someone else, if you show someone else love, the love in your own heart grows. But hope's the same way. And I just don't know that most of us, I don't, I don't know how much we hear about hope from the, from the pulpit in homilies, because it's this mysterious thing. By the way, one last thing I'll say about hope. One of the greatest things I've ever read was uh, Pope Benedict's encyclical on hope. It's called Space Salvi, Saved by Hope. I think that is a document that will be read 500 years from now. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's a wonderful meditation on hope that I would recommend to everyone. That's great. In A Graduate's Guide to Life, you, you said that material wealth is inherently a function of hope. And I just, I loved that, that quote. Like, it, it just resonated with me so much because I feel like the challenge to hope, I mean, in our world, in our culture, in especially like within the Catholic world, I feel like so many young people look at the church right now and say, like, there's no way that I can have an impact on making this thing better. Like, there's no way that I can, I can be like, there's just a, it, this, this sense of like deadness in, in a lot of parishes or in, in a lot of places that the young people feel. And there's also that in the, the financial world, right? Like just play it safe, get a job. Don't like try to step out of here, like, and do something different. There's no way that's going to work. How do you cultivate that in a way that's, I mean, gratitude is huge. How do we get that sense of hope in ourselves in a way that's really deep, that changes the way that we interact with things, that allows us to dream? I think one thing is to look at historical examples. So obviously within the church, we have the saints who we can look at, but I'll even say, yeah, you know, there's a guy, he's, he's kind of pilloried in some circles now, but he lived a difficult life because of some struggles. And at the end of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, as he looked at all the destruction, he said a phrase which stuck with me. He said, history teaches us to hope. And so I think it's worth looking at historical examples. One that I always keep in mind is Veronica. Okay, So Veronica goes through her life and we still tell her story 2,000 years later because all Veronica did, all she did was reach out to wipe the sweat and blood away from a prisoner who was walking through the streets. You know, Jesus was carrying his cross and Veronica w reached out with her veil and wiped his face and with one gesture changed history. I've been involved in the political world for a number of years and I've seen where sometimes one little thing here or there makes a huge difference politically in, in how things things might turn out. And so, so I think one of the things in terms of, of not getting too discouraged is to look at history and sometimes the relatively insignificant people or actions that were taken that ended up producing a lot of good. I think with many of us, and especially the people who are in their 20s and 30s, but even, even those of us who are in our 40s and 50s or 60s, there's a tendency to feel like we have to bring something to the world that, that dramatically changes and improves the world and, and that we can witness in our lifetimes. And I think part of the exercise of hope is to play our part mm. 
and to trust that, that, that God will bring good out of it. You know, it's funny. I have I have some grandsons now, and I, you, people have all these jokes about being why being a grandparent is better than being a parent. And they, they're all these things like, well, the good thing about grandkids is you can give them back. Or, or grandchildren are the reward for having put up with children. There's all these things that people say. But what I've, what I've realized is when you're in the throes of your 20s and 30s and you have children, you're so busy and hectic that you see your children as a responsibility, as a source of love. You love them. They love you. But they're a responsibility. And when you have grandchildren, you see them as a sign of hope. One of my grandsons had his two-year-old birthday yesterday, and he actually knows his favorite song because his mother does this little questionnaire when they turn a certain age, right? In age two, she has this little questionnaire she asks him. And he, doesn't, he doesn't speak all that well, but he can, he can kind of communicate. And so she asked him, what's your favorite song? Okay. And his favorite song is, he calls it just, Oh God. But his the song he knows is, Oh God, Beyond All Praising, right? He sings that. He doesn't speak real articulately, but he can, you know. So I think we have to look around us. There are signs of hope. There are also signs of despair. And we have to consciously choose every day. Will I focus on the signs of despair or the signs of hope? One of the key elements of focusing on the signs of hope, find yourself some good friends, a spouse, family members, who also have hope. Because guess what? It multiplies. Hmm. So one of the things I try to focus on, man, when I'm down, you need to cultivate human relationships. All of us in this virtual world we live in, where we can go online and entertain ourselves, we have got to cultivate good friendships with good people because it's one of the most essential elements of our hope. Yeah, that's so good, Frank. Thank you so much for <laughs> ministering to my heart. I want to be cognizant of the time, but I also would kick myself. I didn't ask you one more question. I just want to hear what it was like when you started your business with your brother, you took out a loan, used money that you had saved as a down payment on that loan, which seems incredibly risky. I would I have no idea what I would do with that kind of intensity. So I, I, I just wanted to ask what signing those papers was like and just knowing like it's go time now. Like, <laughs> Well, first of all, and this is why it's, it's actually easier to start a business when you're really young because you kind of have less to lose. Okay. I mean, if today I had to sign a note and put down everything I own, you know, for I wouldn't do it. I, I can't imagine doing it. But when you're young, Okay, if we lose it, we lose it. Now, I'll also tell you this. Anything could happen. We could have lost it all, but we'd have started again. But I will tell you this. The thing that we were investing in, I had put so much time and energy into studying it. I was laser focused. And you remember what we talked about at the beginning, man? If you are really, really focused, you can, anything can happen. An earthquake can happen, okay? You can have a Great Depression. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But boy, if you are really focused, the difference between being between kind of paying attention and being laser locked on something, this is the difference between night and day. You know, you said you were involved in music, okay? The difference between kind of knowing a piece and having it down where you don't miss a note and you perform it, you know, not perfectly, it's never perfect, but the difference between sort of having a piece kind of mastered and having a piece mastered, it's night and day. So, so it was a little nervous, but, but you know what? If you do your homework and you're prepared on something, you, you take your chance. You know, we talked about earlier this combination of being invigorated and a little bit of anxiety. A little bit of butterflies in the stomach are, are not bad for life. <laughs> if, if you're walking up to the altar to get married and you're not a little bit nervous, 
well, some, something's probably wrong. So, uh, so we can't get too spooked when we get a little bit nervous. Some things are worth taking a chance for, um, especially something like getting married, by the way. So um, I, by the way, it's just one final note. I do find a lot of young folks these days feeling like the challenge in getting married is to find the perfect person. And the perfect person doesn't exist. You find a good, compatible person who you can live with, and then you choose to love them for the rest of your life, and God blesses it in ways beyond any estimation. And so I just, I would like to maybe leave you with that, because I do believe there's pressure in our society today to find the perfect person. And I don't think anybody in the history of the world has ever found the perfect person to marry. But there have been many people who found somebody quite compatible and chose to love them with all their hearts and were blessed beyond measure. Yeah, that's so good, Frank. (laughs) Thank you so much for for your time, just being willing to, to speak. I mean, speak to me, but speak to, to my listeners. I mean, I, I just feel deeply encouraged by this conversation. How can people learn more about you and, and who you are outside of your Wikipedia page? You know, where, where do they find you and, and also get your book? Well, thank you for that. Um, and the Wikipedia page, since I don't have any control over that, I don't necessarily direct them there because no telling what somebody's going to put in. But um, uh, but I would, we, we have our website, Hannah Capital. Um, and so if, if, if they Google that, but also on Amazon, uh, A Graduate's Guide to Life is available on Amazon, both in book form and in an audio book. And What Your Money Means is also available there. So I appreciate you asking about that. All, any money that comes from these books, I give back to the church because that's why I'm writing them. Again, as we discussed before, that's nothing against the profit motive, but I just, I donate all of that back to the church. But this is a pleasure being with you. And I want to encourage you in this endeavor you're engaged in, Marcellino, because I think providing this sort of enlightenment and encouragement and inspiration and to your listeners is just a wonderful thing you're doing. So thank you. Thanks so much, Frank. All right. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. And I uh, hope that the rest of your day is, is just filled with hope and uh, tech is just in Technicolor. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I like that. Thanks, Marcelino. In 2016, we issued a call to creatives, entrepreneurs, designers, and artists from all over the continent to come together in Dallas because we believed that the time was right for a new renaissance to take place in the church. 85 of the most talented young Catholic leaders in the Americas answered the call, coming together because of this shared vision. And what took place at that summit was a flowering of community that was beyond description. And it is now clear that new da Vinci's, Mozart's, Michelangelo's, Beethoven's, and Medici's are being brought together to blaze new trails for the gospel, to build new businesses, ministries, and works of art that will be catalysts for massive culture change. And if you are listening to this, then you have also answered this call, and we are so grateful for your participation in this movement. If you want to hear more from the speakers, participate in monthly professional development webinars, and be publicly represented on the Catholic Creatives website, you can make this happen by supporting us on Patreon. Your support and your commitment are vital for the growth and mission of Catholic Creatives. And the rewards are awesome. So your help means everyone can benefit even more from our community this year as we sponsor our creative projects and plan next year's summit. The time is right for a new renaissance, a counter wave of beauty. Our world needs aesthetically and philosophically articulate leaders, artists, creatives, and risk takers. Our world needs you. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the community on Facebook and Slack and at the regional meetups and at the summit. We'll see you there.